The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I mean, 7. <laughs> you can turn to 1 Corinthians 12 if you want. It's really good too, but we won't be there for a while. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And our text tonight starts in, in verse 12. The apostle says, this, this is picking up in the middle of his argument. He says, to the rest, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, And she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Well, Paul is uh, continuing on in his instructions regarding divorce. And just by way of um, review... This whole section actually starts with a Corinthian slogan. Uh, Paul starts off in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the things which you wrote to me. And then you have this quotation, uh, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That is in all likelihood, as I've mentioned, a Corinthian slogan that um, that was probably being... uh, uh, bantered around as uh, some sort of high mark of spirituality and the uh, the goodness of of not having sexual relations in marriage was seen to be some sort of virtue among the Corinthians Paul has then been dealing with that since the opening of chapter 7 we get to this section and in this section Paul is is continuing in dealing with marriage and divorce issues, but here he's dealing specifically with what we would call mixed marriages. That is marriages between believers and unbelievers. And so this this issue may also uh, have been raised in the Corinthian letter. It's hard to know exactly what was in that Corinthian letter, but you could well imagine with the uh, Corinthians super spirituality that they probably had some 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 good um, rationale for wanting to divorce unbelieving spouses. And so, I mean, if you stop and think about it, if if you have this um, this uh, notion going around the church that that the really holy marriages are sexless marriages. Uh, and then you have people that are even then divorcing in order to uh, um, uh, abstain completely from 
um, from sexual contact. And then you have people that are married to unbelievers. And it's very possible that the idea was, is that we ought to divorce our unbelieving spouses too. I mean, because, uh, I mean, after all, Paul told us not to associate with the immoral people of this world. And here I am, I'm married to one. And so it, it, they're contaminating me. And Paul is going to address this issue. And so in verse 12, he says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. And so to the rest, (laughs) you have to think, okay, well, let's see. He's talked to the married. He's talked to the unmarried. He's talked to the demarried widows and widowers. And so who's left? Well, he gets now to the rest and the rest would be those who were in a marriage with an unbeliever. Now, you have to understand that 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 could have looked like one of two different things. That could have been a person who had become a Christian who is married to an unbelieving pagan, or it could have been a person who had become a Christian who is married to an unbelieving Jew. Okay? In both both of those cases, that would be a mixed marriage, believer and an unbeliever. And Paul says very clearly, he says, I say not the Lord. Now, all that means really is that um, whereas Paul had a direct um, uh, word from Jesus as recorded in the Gospels relating to divorce as he applied it earlier in this passage, Jesus never addressed the idea of what happens when you have a believer married to an unbeliever. Okay. That, by the way, that situation would have really never come up in our Lord's ministry. And so, uh, for Paul, he's saying, so I don't have a direct statement from Jesus regarding this situation. So what I'm about to tell you, it's me telling you, not me quoting Jesus. Now, um, I was down in uh, Las Vegas a couple weeks weekends ago doing a wedding for Megan and uh, and Ed and uh, we were having dinner at the for the rehearsal dinner and one of the family members got into this very heated debate with one of the other pastors that was there. He's a good friend of mine, and the guy said that. And I've mentioned this before, but I've never actually met somebody in the flesh, but I finally did. He said, I'm a red-letter Christian. That is, the only thing that I care about in the Bible is the stuff that Jesus said, because everything else is just what men say. So he would discount any of the apostles of what they had to say, because it wasn't what Jesus had to say. You have to understand that when, when we read that all Scripture is God-breathed, that means the stuff that Jesus said that was recorded for us, the stuff that Moses said that was recorded for us, the stuff that Solomon said, or the psalmist, or the chronicler, or Ezra, or the gospel writers or the apostles, in fact, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation chapter 22, all scripture is God-breathed, and therefore, it is all equally authoritative. So there's no way to actually take a statement like this, 
I say, not the Lord, and to say, well, this must not be as important. Because it's Paul who is an apostle of Christ Jesus. If you need to read his credentials, you can go back to Galatians chapter 1. He did not receive his gospel from men or through men. He received as a direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself. And so, in fact, later in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is going to actually say to those Corinthians who think they're so spiritual, so if you think you're spiritual, if you think you're a prophet, then you better listen up and you better listen to what I have to say. Because if what you have to say doesn't match up with what I have to say, guess who's wrong? And so Paul speaks with apostolic authority, and so there's there's no sense here where somehow this might be a little less authoritative, or Paul's just giving his opinion. This too is inspired scripture, which just brings us to something that we need to say from time to time, and that is that we are under obligation to believe the whole Bible, You don't get the right to pick and choose what you like and what you don't like and what you're going to believe and what you're not going to believe. It's not your job. It's not your place. God is king and his word is authoritative. There's one posture we have before the word and that is to bow the knee and to obey it. So Paul goes on and he says... So if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Right away, Paul's dealing with a situation that would have been relatively common as the gospel went out from Jerusalem and started to permeate the, 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 the Gentile world. Okay? We read, for instance, in the book of Acts, that sometimes when God saved people, he saved uh, whole households of people, right? The Philippian jailer, Lydia, for instance, he worked in, in their entire household, so all that those who could believe actually did believe because God opened their heart. But we would be profoundly mistaken if we thought that all conversions in the New Testament era were household conversions, There would have been hundreds, if not thousands of times, where a man or a woman heard the gospel, put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then found themselves married, because they were already in a marriage, found themselves married to somebody who did not have the same loyalty to Jesus, in fact, had no loyalty to Jesus. This would have happened... All the time. It still happens to this day, right? Okay, and Don won't mind, but I've heard the story a hundred times over the last 20 plus years. And Gene Strachan went home one day and said, Don, I'm in love with another man and I love him more than you. And his name is Jesus Christ. Okay. And Don wanted to know who this Jesus was because he was going to go fight him or something. But then... Jesus arrested Don, too, after a while. But, okay, so a year. So Gene had the, the, the privilege of living with an unbelieving Donald Strachan for a year. Okay? Now, here's, here's the amazing thing, is that here's this situation where you have somebody, and think about what happens when a person comes to believe in Jesus, right? 
I mean, I, I, I watched my parents. My mom came to know Christ before my dad did. And here my mom is, she's enthusiastic about the word and she, she loves Christ and she, you know, she's, she's learning and she's growing and here's my dad and he's thinking, what happened? Who is this person? She's, she's like a fanatic now. And so here you have this situation and, and one spouse comes to Christ, the other does not. And so what does the other spouse do? Well, the other spouse continues in their devotion their religious devotion to his or her gods. You could imagine that not only would this have caused serious tension in believer and pagan mixed marriage, but think about if you had a a, a person who had come to believe in Jesus and they came from a Jewish background. That was probably even more intense. And so here, Paul actually says this, he says it in a way that, that, that creates a little bit of a punch. The, the, the text kind of reads like this. If any brother a wife has who is an unbeliever. And so this situation, Paul is going to apply both in, to both cases very in a very balanced, symmetrical way. And so here's the situation. You've got the unbeliever and the believer married together. And of course, the believer is in union with Christ, right? The unbeliever is not. And so you have a, a, a spiritually mixed marriage. And then Paul says this. So if a brother has a wife who does not believe and she is pleased to live with him, okay? that is she, the unbelieving wife, is Please. Now that's, is pleased is my translation. New American Standard and ESV says, if she consents to live with him. NIV and Holman Standard is willing. Actually, the net Bible here does the best job, I think. And that is, that is this. Um, if she is happy to live with him. So the idea that Paul is presenting here is because the word itself is is a little stronger than just um, just just mere consent or mere willingness. The idea is that if the unbeliever is is content with the marriage, if the unbeliever is in agreement that they should continue to dwell together, that is live together as husband and wife. If, if the unbeliever is the one who says, you know, we should stay in this marriage commitment, then Paul says he's not to divorce her. In other words, Paul does something very interesting here, and that is he puts the, the initiative for the dissolution of the marriage in the unbeliever's court, not the believer's court. This is not ultimately the decision that the, that the believing spouse gets to make. This is ultimately the decision of the unbelieving spouse. And Paul says, notice that he is not to divorce her. New American Standard, uh, he must not divorce her, captures the idea that, that it, this is a command. And so if the unbelieving spouse is content to stay in the marriage, the believer must not divorce. And the word for divorce, this is... Always uh, amazing to beginning Greek students, the word to divorce, afiemi, can mean to dismiss, to release, to send away, to forgive, or to divorce. <laughs> okay? The idea is, is to release somebody, and in a legal sense, releasing somebody is to divorce them. Now, David Garland, he, he notes, rightfully so, 
the, the consent, that is the consent of the unbelieving spouse, presupposes that the spouse will not badger that Christian or try to stymie his or her Christian con- commitment. Okay? So the picture, the picture is not the unbeliever reluctantly yet vindictively stays in the marriage in order to make life absolutely miserable for the believer. No, they're, they're pleased to continue as they are. Verse 13, Paul says the exact same thing, but in the reverse. Notice that if a wife has an unbelieving husband and he is pleased to dwell with her, she must not divorce the husband. In this verse, all Paul's done is he's just uh, presented the same situation just in the reverse. But you have to understand, too, that that this just sounds like um, equality to us, Right? And it is, I mean, it, it, but you have to understand, too, that there is a, um, uh, something about this culturally that makes this sort of stand out. And so even though it's just sort of a, a reversed situation, there's an added cultural dimension here, and that is that now Paul's talking about the wife who has an unbelieving husband. You have to understand that in the first century, the idea of a wife adopting different religious beliefs from her husband was, was absolutely unheard of. In fact, you can see it in the, in the literature and in the commentaries that, that oftentimes wives were actually, once they got married, they were actually um, encouraged to leave all their old friends behind, adopt her husband's friends as her friends and her husband's gods as her gods. So the wife was, was expected actually to embrace the religion of the husband. And in fact, David Garland says, for a wife to adopt different religious beliefs from those of her husband flouted social mores of the ancient world. In other words, this was something that wasn't done. Now, of course, if you have a religious environment where people choose their gods, like you choose ice cream at Baskin-Robbins, then it's no big deal just to adopt the gods of your spouse, right? In fact, my mom grew up as nothing, really. Um, she had no religious affiliation. She just went to church with whatever neighbor would take her, which meant that one Sunday she was at the Methodist church and the next Sunday she was at the Mormon church. She had no religious affiliation, but when her and my dad got engaged, guess what she did? She converted to Catholicism. She converted to Catholicism because she was so overwhelmed with the majesty and glory of the magisterium. No, that wasn't it. She was overwhelmed with the mystery of the holy sacraments. No, that wasn't it. You know why she converted to Catholicism? There was no, there was nothing spiritual in it at all. It was so they could get married in the church. That's why. 
And so in, in, in a culture like that, uh, it, it was uh, it totally expected the wife just adopts the religion of the husband. She just adopts the gods of the husband. And now Paul's presenting a situation where you have wives who have, who have come and, and understand that this is not just a matter of, uh, of, of you know, making a, a new uh, political party affiliation or choosing a new sports team. When a person came to Christ, this was a radical transformation. It was, it was bringing somebody out of darkness into light, from death into life. It was now, it was now loyalty to King Jesus. No longer could they even say just by a tip of the hat that Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord. And so Christianity was not just, you know, the religion of the month, the flavor of the month. Christianity was power. It was transformation. And so here you have a, 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 a woman who, who is married and she's worshiped all the gods that her husband has, you know, up in their, uh, their, their little, um, uh, their little shrine in their house. And now she's a worshiper, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and you could well imagine the, uh, the tension that she would feel. And yet here's Paul's, here is Paul's admonition. Wife, if you have an unbelieving husband and he's content to dwell with you, don't you in turn divorce him? You know what Paul's advice is so far in these two verses? It's the advice that he's given all along. It's the advice that he's going to actually expound on in a major way in the next paragraph. And that is whatever, whatever situation, whatever station of life you find yourself in, when you come to Christ, just stay there. Don't try to change it. Don't try to get out of it. If you're, if you're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants to stay, stay. It's that simple. Then Paul gives the reason. And I have to admit, this is one, this is, these next two verses are, are incredibly fascinating. Verse 14 gives the reason why a believer should stay with an unbeliever if the unbeliever consents. For, The unbelieving husband, you ready for this, is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean. Now they are holy. Now this this passage... Paul is actually giving the rationale. This is why you should not want to try to get out of the marriage. You're not being contaminated by an unbelieving spouse. To the contrary, you're actually sanctifying an unbelieving spouse. Well, the usual word for sanctify, or the usual meaning for sanctify, is clearly not in view here. Paul has used this word already, uh, chapter 1 and verse 30, and uh, chapter 6 and verse 11, and he uses the word sanctify in those places uh, as a picture or metaphor of what happens in salvation, where God actually comes and, 
and, and, and separates us from our sin, creates a breach between us and our sin through the work of the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so here's, here's, um, here's Gordon Fee, and this is, this is good. He says, whatever it, that is whatever the word sanctify means here, it cannot carry the force that it usually carries. Okay? Not only because the idea that marriage can affect salvation for the pagan, not, uh, he says, because the idea that marriage can affect salvation for the pagan partner would be nonsense to Paul, but also the concluding sentence in verse 16 completely disallows such a view. Verse 16, how do you know if you'll save your unbelieving spouse? So if, if whatever Paul means by sanctify here, we have to be careful, right? Nobody comes into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ by virtue of being married to the right person. Just as sure as you kids do not come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ just because of who your parents are. Okay. Just, it doesn't work that way. I've told you this before, but one of the first times I had an in-depth conversation with Ariel back a long time ago, about 1986 or 5, around there, I asked her if she was a Christian, and she said, of course. And I said, well, why do you think you're a Christian? She said, well, my grandfather's a minister. I'm like, well, how does that work? You give like some special salvation blessing because your grandpa's a minister? It doesn't work that way. God doesn't have grandchildren or great-grandchildren. You've heard that, right? And so here, whatever Paul's saying, he's not saying, hey, believing spouse, don't worry about it. Your spouse is now saved because of you. It's not what he's saying. Notice, clearly, how does sanctification happen in this verse? Is the unbeliever sanctified by God? Is the unbeliever sanctified by the Holy Spirit? Look at the text. How is the unbelieving spouse sanctified? Through the believing spouse. All right? Now, I have no doubt that I've had a sanctifying influence on Ariel over the years. In fact, I think I've probably had a profound sanctifying influence on Ariel over the years. But you have to understand that I myself am not the agent of sanctification. Right? And for whatever sanctification she's gained, I can tell you that I've probably gained ten times as much. By her. If I sanctify you, is that saving sanctification? Not at all. Not at all. In order for it to be real sanctification that is like saving sanctification, it has to be the work of the Spirit. But notice here, what Paul says is that it is the believing spouse that is, in a sense, the the agent of sanctification. 
And so I think that what Paul's getting at is, is this. Remaining in the marriage maintains the potential for the unbelieving spouse's salvation. And so in a, in a real sense, the unbelieving spouse being joined together with a believing spouse has been now set apart under a unique influence of the gospel and verse, in a sense, verse 16 kind of provides a backdrop for us to kind of see how this works. And so, by the way, Paul does the exact thing. He gives uh, some symmetry here. And again, the unbelieving wife has been sanctified by the brother. And so here's, here's the idea. Paul says you shouldn't want to just get out of a marriage when you're married to an unbeliever because you have a sanctifying influence on the unbelieving spouse in a way that would not happen if the, if the marriage got dissolved. How, let's just think about this for a moment. How can a, let's say, a believing wife have a sanctifying impact on an unbelieving husband? Are the prayers of a believing spouse on behalf of an unbelieving spouse, a special influence that is that is a a privilege and a blessing. Yes, absolutely. Um, think about how does a um, how is a um, a husband and disobedient husband one in First Peter chapter three. He is one, not by her words, but what's that? By her chaste conduct. In other words, so the believing, unbelieving spouse is, is in a marriage relationship with the believer and what they hear and what they see is something that has a sanctifying influence on them so that they are being set apart for the gospel itself. My dad was having, this is, this is pretty typical of Roman Catholics, by the way, he was having what is oftentimes called a crisis of faith. He'd go to work and drive his route and wrestle with whether or not he even believed in God. Raised Catholic his whole life. He'd come home, and my mom would be like, Steve, I was reading the Bible today, and look what the Scripture says. Okay? You think he was set apart for the gospel? Absolutely. That's how it works. That's how it works. And so the prayers and the witness and the example, all of those things are to have this sanctifying influence. And so Paul says, listen, if that unbeliever is happy to stay with you, by all means, stay with them. 
They're sanctified by that marriage relationship. They're set apart for gospel purposes through that marriage relationship. Now, to make no mistake, verse 16 is not going to give any guarantees on salvation of anybody. But as long as they're in that relationship, there's a sanctifying influence that's going on. And then notice Paul, Paul makes this argument. This is, this is great. He says, for otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they're holy. Okay? Now let, me just, let me just say one thing about this that should be fairly obvious to all of us. And that is, this is not a proof text for baptism, infant baptism. You do know that certain paedo-baptists, those who baptize babies, use this as a proof text to baptize babies. Now, other paedo-baptists actually realize that there is that that, that that can't be the case because if it were the case, Paul would not be appealing to the fact that they're clean by virtue of a believing parent he would have appealed to the fact that they were clean by virtue of what? Their baptism. And of course, that's not Paul's argument at all. But what is Paul saying here? Well, when he says otherwise, in other words, so if your argument were true and the unbelieving spouse contaminated the believing spouse, if that were true, then your children would, of course, be little unclean things. But now, that is in light of my argument, the, the, the fact that you have a believing spouse that sanctifies an unbelieving spouse, what that also means is that your children are holy. Which, of course, clearly means that your children are perfectly behaved and never do anything wrong. Right? <laughs> Yes. It's not what it means. Your children are holy. And and again, you have to understand, holy, in the normal sense of the word holy? Okay. I've raised three children. They're all fully grown now. I never had one, even a half a second thought of... He's holy. (laughs) A lot of things crossed my mind. That wasn't one of them. Right? What Paul is saying is that children in a mixed marriage are sanctified in the same way that an unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse. In other words, what Paul is saying is, listen, it's, it's, it's not the unbeliever who, who carries the ultimate sway in the marriage and with the children. It's the believer. It's the impact and the influence and the presence of the believer that sanctifies the unbelieving spouse and actually sets those children apart. Oh, this is, this is actually really, really, really good news because so often when there are, when there are mixed marriages, there's always the, 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 the worry that it's the unbelieving spouse that's going to have the most influence and it's the unbelieving spouse that's somehow going to contaminate these children. And Paul says it's just the contrary. 
The prayers of a believing mother are more powerful than the bad example of an unbelieving father. You believe that? The witness of a believing spouse carries so much more weight than the bad witness of an unbelieving spouse. There are going to be certain things that children grow up remembering. And of course, they rem- of course they remember the bad things. If you don't believe me, just wait for your kids to become adults and then ask them what they remember of growing up. And they'll, trust me, they don't come up with all the fun things you did with them. They come up with all of the, Dad, you remember that time you got really, really mad at me and Alex and broke that chair? No, I don't remember that. I remember taking you to Disneyland. Okay. So when, but when kids grow up, there are certain things that they remember. And when you ask them, what, what are the things that impacted you? What are the things that you remember spiritually? There are things like, I remember us reading the Bible together. I remember us doing the catechism. I remember us singing together. I remember that, that, Alex's favorite hymn was Elskadai, Elskadai. <laughs> Those are the things they remember. Those are the things that have a lasting impact. Those are the things that even in their rebellion, they can never put out of their mind. You've catechized your kids, for instance, even as adults, you think they could remember who made you? God. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. So, that believing spouse Paul says it's the believing spouse that carries the weight. It's the believing spouse that has the influence. It is the believing spouse that is an instrument of sanctification for hopefully the salvation, not only of an unbelieving spouse, but even of the children themselves. Verse 15, yet... If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. So Paul's always the realist, right? So you've got the ideal, you've got the standard, but then you've got, then you've got the, the, the qualification, the concession here. If the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. And so Paul qualifies the situation now. There's a sense in which, again, as I, as I noted earlier, all of this comes right back down to the, the initiative for the uh, dissolution or the maintenance of the marriage ends up resting on the unbeliever as far as Paul is concerned here. So if the unbeliever wants to separate from the marriage, that is, initiates the divorce. Paul says, let him leave. 
In other words, don't try to, don't try to uh, claw and contest and, and fight and stand in the way and, 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 and make things horrible and, and ugly. He's just, let him leave. And in fact, on this point in the text, there's virtual agreement across the board that that's exactly what Paul is getting at. But it's the next two things that Paul says that are a little less clear. He says, the brother or sister is not bound in these things. So, if the unbeliever wants to leave, let him leave. In these things, the brother or sister has not been bound. Now, I think that Paul means two things. By not bound, he means at least this, that the believer is not bound to try to maintain the marriage in the case that the unbeliever leaves. He's not bound, he, she is not bound to try to maintain if the unbeliever leaves. Well, that actually is, 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 is too simple, isn't it? Well, of course they're not bound if the unbeliever leaves. So Paul doesn't just, can't just simply mean that they're not bound to try to maintain a marriage that's not there anymore. I think that what Paul has in mind is when he says no longer bound, I think the idea is they're no longer bound to the marriage in a way that they are actually free to remarry. The reason I think that is for two reasons. Paul says something similar in verse 39. He says a wife is bound. And young people don't think Paul is looking at marriage like it's, like it's prison, okay? Bound like I'm in shackles or something. The idea is legally bound. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is now what? She's free to be married to whom she wishes, but only in the Lord. It's interesting in um, in David Instone Brewer's uh, massive work called "Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible: The Social and Literary Context." He says he says a lot about this. Let me just boil it down to just a couple sentences here. He says when Paul said, "You're no longer enslaved," in verse fifteen, this was in the context of release from a marriage to an unbeliever who had deserted. Paul used wording that was reminiscent of the wording on both Greek and Jewish divorce certificates. There would have been no doubt in the mind of his readers that Paul was referring to the right of the divorcee to remarry. And so Paul is saying that if the unbeliever leaves you, you're no longer bound in that marriage relationship in such a way, but rather you are now free. Okay? And then he says, for God has called us to peace. Now, this, this verse probably gets more um, ink than, than any of the rest because it's puzzling. So is, is Paul actually referring to the dissolution of the marriage so if the marriage is dissolved, um, then you're no longer bound and God's called you in peace. Or is Paul referring to 
the maintenance of the marriage, those staying in, God has called us to peace. In other words, does this statement apply to verse 15 or to verses 12 and 13? Uh, is Paul saying something like this? God has called us to peace, so don't fight or contest the unbeliever leaving, right? You can see why that some people would take that, right? If God's called us to peace, don't contest and fight the unbeliever leaving. Um, that makes sense, but historically, divorces were never contested. There was no, there was no contesting a divorce. A, a divorce could be initiated legally or just practically, pragmatically, and in either case, there was no recourse to contest anything. It just was what it was. That's all there is to it. And so if Joe Blow decides to uh, leave his wife one day, th- there, was, there was no way that she could do anything to prevent it, and in Greco-Roman culture, vice versa. So even though that seems most appealing to me, historically and culturally, it doesn't seem to, to fit. Um, so it could be that what he's saying is that uh, in a sense, he's sort of wrapping up the whole larger argument. So it's not just a direct statement to let him go uh, because God's called us to peace. It could have the idea, let's say, of God's normal way is for us to be in peace. This is how God has called us. God called us in peace. And so um, th- that applies even with an unbelieving spouse. So Gordon Fee, for instance, sees this as applying to those who choose to remain or who, those who remain in the marriage. God has called us to peace. Um, by the way, I think, I think that this phrase connects us with the next paragraph, 17 to 24, in which case, um, then what Paul is probably saying is that if God called you to himself, all right, while you were in a state of marital harmony, you should do your best to maintain that state of marital harmony. If God, so when he, when he says, by the way, God has called us in peace or to peace, the idea is, is that if you had peace in your marriage before you came to Christ, do your best to maintain peace now that you've come to Christ. I think that actually is the best um, explanation. Old uh, John Barber Lightfoot, an old commentator on Paul, said, what St. Paul says is this, do not let any jar or conflict in the family relations arise out of your Christianity. Live peaceably with the heathen husband or wife who wishes to live with you. If a discussion is urged on their part, do not refuse it. The Christian is not enslaved by such an alliance that he or she may not thus be set free. But let the liberation be the work of another. That is, let the liberation, if there's going to be liberation, let it be the work of the other spouse, not you. And then he says this, and this is so good. He says, do not foster dissensions. Do not promote a separation. Do nothing to endanger peace. Peace is the very atmosphere of your calling in Christ, the very air 
which you breathe as Christians. Now, there, there are obviously qualifications. If you're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever says, well, you can't read your Bible or you can't go to church, you have to obey God, all right? But w- w- what is being said here is that in, in the sense that there was a harmonious relationship, do your best to maintain that harmony. Don't unnecessarily create dissension and, and, uh, and tension within the marriage now because you're a Christian, Pursue the peace as a believing spouse. Because peace (laughs) is the air that we breathe as Christians. Well, Paul then concludes with this statement, verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? By the way, I think that verse 16 is, is, in a sense, a good reason to look at uh, God has called us in peace in the way that I just described it. So stay in the peaceful relationship as, as best as you can. Why? Well, because how do you know, wife, whether you're going to be the one to save your husband and vice versa? Notice Paul's language. Remain. In the marriage, why? Because you just don't know. God may use you as an instrument of their salvation. Now, Paul has already made qualifications and concessions, all right? This is not the absolute, inviolable Word when it comes to marriage. Paul is saying, under these circumstances, if that unbeliever consents to live with p- at peace with you, stay in that marriage. Why? Because you don't know. You may be their salvation. Paul uses language that's forceful, isn't it? You may save them. Now, Paul did not think for a single solitary second that a believing spouse could be a savior. But he uses language that that so emphasizes the fact that you may be an instrument of salvation in that person's life. Stick it out. There's an appeal there, isn't there? And what's the appeal? You don't know. By the way, this, <laughs> it's so funny. The commentators argue over whether this is a pessimistic, well, you don't know, or an optimistic, you never know. I think it's optimistic. You never know. Right? You never know. I mean, what would have happened if nine months after conversion, Gene would have dumped Dawn like a hot rock. You never know. Stuck it out. I've got a better story than that. And I know she doesn't mind me telling this story because I tell it regularly and she knows I tell it regularly. Some of you remember Ruth Hawley. 
married to somebody that wasn't all that peaceful to live with. In fact, married to a person that wasn't a kind person at all. By the way, those are, those are gross understatements. And she stuck it out. Year after year. <laughs> decade after decade. And when Bill was in his late 60s, he came to Christ. I'm not saying everybody's got to stick it out as long as Ruth did. God gives special grace, right? But what an amazing testimony. What an amazing testimony. I will tell you, and Bill, if you ever listen to this, Don't punch me in the face next time you see me. He's still a little rough around the edges. (laughs) But I will tell you, I about dropped dead. You might remember Daniel Hawley was in a terrible car accident about four years ago. And Bill came to see him. And Bill met me in my office. And I had not seen Bill since he had really made a profession of faith. And Bill Hawley sat there and he said, Brian, you have to know how Bill talks. Brian, I want to read you something. He opened up Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. And he says, this is what I read this morning. He's reading Spurgeon to me. And I'm sitting there thinking, did I get hit in the head? Am I hallucinating? Bill Hawley sitting here reading Spurgeon to me. It was an amazing thing. Surreal. Long-suffering of a wife who was willing to hang in there for the salvation of her husband. Well, some people here know the pain of being married to an unbeliever. And some know the pain of having an unbeliever leave. This passage is really designed to give hope for those who are in mixed marriages. I think Paul's, Paul's admonition to us would be this. Don't give up. Don't give up. That sanctifying influence is far more powerful as a follower of Jesus, as somebody who prays, as somebody who worships, as somebody who reads the word, as somebody who lives a life that is different. You have no way to estimate the power of that sanctifying influence on that unbelieving spouse. Some of you have had marriages dissolve. Pray for the salvation of that former spouse. Could you imagine how much glory Jesus would receive if he saved that old scoundrel? So here's Paul's advice to us. He's going to return to marriage, unfortunately, in verse 25. But not exact. Don't, don't read ahead because then you'll be all, you know, inquisitive afterwards. And I'm not going to say anything about it. But this is Paul's advice to us. Paul was a realist. 
He understood that sometimes things didn't work out. But his admonition is stick in it. Stay at it. There's a lot at stake. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, this is, this is hard for, for some. And I pray that you would bring comfort where, where necessary and pray that you'd bring instruction where necessary. And Father, we, we do think of people in our own congregation who are married to unbelievers. And we pray, Father, that even even now, that you would be giving them the necessary grace to have an impact and an influence for the sake of their souls. And so we commit ourselves to you. Father, we thank you for those of us who have spouses who love you. Lord, we, uh, we thank you. We give you thanks and praise. Receive our praise tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.